video cracks me up. You know, someone who thinks that they know the plot line of Star Wars just by seeing bits and parts of it and try to tell the story of it, pretty funny. But I wonder if someone asked us to describe the storyline of the Old Testament, if we might sound a little bit like that video. That we know bits and parts, but we just know enough really to be quite dangerous in trying to put together the storyline of the Old Testament. Uh, You know, maybe the question we need to ask at this point, is that okay? Is it okay to not really care about the Old Testament? To only read the New Testament and just not work at trying to figure out the Old Testament? Well, let me say three things to that real quick. Number one, Jesus loved and read his Old Testament, the Old Testament. Am I going on? We all right? Kind of felt like I'm going in and out. Anyway, we'll, we'll just keep going. Push ahead. Uh, you know, the second thing is this, is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are two parts of the same story. So you can't understand the New Testament fully without understanding the Old Testament. And they're not two stories, but they're one story. And the third thing is this, is that there's all kinds of great spiritual truths and great stories that would really be nourishing to our soul if we took the time to read them and study them. And so... I, I, hear me say this, if you opened up your Old Testament tomorrow and started trying to read through it, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Uh, there's, it takes some work to understand it and to learn how it all puts together. But that's why we've started, uh, we're going to start a nine-week series on the, that we're calling the Old Testament and nine people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start, we're, we've picked nine people uh, that are going to help us to understand the, the storyline and the flow of the Old Testament as well as getting also a little bit of a a grasp on some of these spiritual truths and stories that really can uh, be beneficial uh, for us to understand. And so tonight, we're going to kick off the series with Cain. We're going to raise some Cain. All right. Uh, So, you know, Cain lived his whole life in the shadow of the most hugely cataclysmic event in human history. So if we're trying to understand, uh, you know, how much the world had changed and what he was living in. You know, a a paltry comparison is this, is what we have experienced going through 9-11. See, I was 27 years old when 9-11 occurred. I remember in the morning watching the Today Show after the first plane had hit the first tower. I remember watching and just wondering to myself, and the news was confused, was this just a horrible accident? Had it a person piloting a plane accidentally flown into the first tower. But when the second plane hit the tower, the second tower, any illusion that we had that this was just an accident vanished. See, at that point when we were watching on live TV those buildings crumble, we knew we were living in a different world. The world was changing before our eyes. And see, the world, you know, I realize most of you have, you know, most of your, you know, alert and aware life has occurred post 9-11, you know. Uh, some of you were four at the time, possibly, uh, that 9-11 occurred. And so, you know, but I have lived a lot before and a lot after, uh, you know, 9-11. And I can tell you this, that the world changed on 9-11. You know, most of it's kind of small ways, you know. But even just taking flying, for example, for example. You know, is that when I used to, to fly, I'd show up 30 minutes before I was going to go on a flight. Now I have to show up an hour and a half because of all the extra security measures. 
The news is different. And now there's just this general fear that we all have. You know, there's all kinds of new groups popping up, and we just don't, you know, their strategies are changing, the groups are changing. It's not just Al-Qaeda anymore. It's ISIS. It's Boko Haram. It's all these other groups. And uh, it seems that once you get a handle on one, there's another one popping up in another part of the world. And so we realize now that we are in a different kind of war than we've ever had to fight before. And that's hard. It's we're figuring out how to live in this new war, how to fight this new war. What changes has that made in in our life? See, the reality was is that we were in a war before 9-11 happened. We just didn't know it. There were already people who were living among us that wanted to destroy America and what we stood for, even without a formal declaration of war. And see, now we know, though, and now we have to be vigilant if we're going to win this war. Well, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, when they ate that forbidden fruit, was a much bigger, much more tragic 9-11. See, because it truly comprehensively changed our world. See, instead of experiencing peace with God and peace with one another, instead of having peace within ourselves and peace with the physical universe, everything now in this world has become messed up. And see, Cain is the first son to Adam and Eve. He is born into this shadow of Eden. The loss of Eden. That's the world that he's building, uh, born into. And so let's read his story. We're going to read uh, Genesis 4, 1 to 12. So uh, you can read along with me on the screen above. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So the question we have at this point as we think about it is, why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? Well, some have wanted to say, well, it must be because... Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Something else was dying in place of him. It was a substitute offering. And, you know, and Cain just offered fruit and produce and grain, and therefore you know, Abel's was accepted, but Cain's is not. But, but the reality is, is you know, when, you, we get, when God gives laws of sacrifices in, in the Old Testament, he certainly calls for animal sacrifices, but there's also grain offerings and fruit offerings much like Cain. So it seems that both are acceptable to God. So it it seems to be something more than that. So other people have tried to say, well, we do have a hint in the text that Abel offers the firstborn of his flock. So maybe it's the quality of the offering. Maybe Abel is offering something better. Whereas Cain, it just says he just offered some fruit from the ground. Well, that could be. But that doesn't seem to be the focus that the rest of the Bible gives. Because when it describes what was acceptable about Abel's offering, particularly in the book of Hebrews, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. So he was approaching the sacrificial system as a ceremony that was training his heart to trust and believe in God more deeply. 
whereas it seems that Cain is approaching the sacrificial system differently. It seems like he's approaching it as much of the pagan world approached it, which was, God, if I do this, if I make a sacrifice, then you have to do this. It seems that he is approaching it differently, as if he can earn God's blessing, give something God needs in order to get something back. And so when his offering is not accepted, he's angered. So let's pick up from there. And we see in verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So here we have the first human murder. Why was Cain so moved to murder his own brother, Abel? Well, it seems that it was jealousy. It seemed that Cain's heart had been so consumed with what he wanted, what he felt like he deserved, acceptance, being seen as being righteous, that when he didn't have those things but somebody else did, his brother did, that not only was he not able to love his brother in that moment, but that he was wishing ill upon his brother. He was so consumed with his own life that he thought, you know what? I would rather not have to look at you anymore. I would rather that you not live anymore so that I can feel better about myself. And so Cain killed his brother. So let's pick up in the story in verse 9 then. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. See, God is asking Cain questions here, not because he doesn't know. Because we see in the later verses, he clearly knows what's happened, and he knows where Abel is. But he's asking Cain's questions in order to expose Cain's heart. And here we see someone who's committed a murder, but he is not ashamed. He's not feeling guilty enough at this point where he says, you know what, I need to be forgiven. He is instead denying. He is hiding. And there seems to be some sense which he is still trying to justify what he has done. He is not ready to ask for forgiveness yet. And so that is where we see him at this point. And so in a post, you know, in a post-Eden world that we all live in, you know, Adam and Eve did not seem to be aware that there was this serious a war going on that was going to affect their own family. And perhaps we are not aware in this post-Eden world the war that we're in. See, this passage is a wake-up call that we need in order to be prepared to fight this real war that is going on around us right now in this life. So what do we learn about the war that we're living in, that we're meant to fight in this post-Eden world? Well, the first thing we see is that the enemy is within us. See, in America's history, we've always experienced wars like this. One nation declaring war on another nation, or one group of people 
declaring war on another group of people. And so what happened in 9-11 was that all of a sudden we realized that there's a people among us who there is no formal declaration of war, that there is a people who want to destroy us that are living among us. This is a different kind of war. This is a much more difficult war to fight. And see, in our post-Eden world, we can falsely believe that our greatest problems are outside of us. They're in our circumstances. That if I could just change my circumstances, my life would be better. They're with other people. If other people would just get out of my life, then my life would be better. But see, the greatest problem that we face in a post-Eden world is the problems that we have within. We can't just say, if people weren't so dumb, then I wouldn't have to say dumb things back. You know, we can't say, the reason I messed up, it was because I was in a pinch. It's because I was in a hard situation. See, in the Garden of Eden, the temptation, you know, with Adam and Eve, the situation was always different. See, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tempted by, they had to be tempted by something outside of themselves. They were tempted by something outside of themselves. But what we see happening with Cain is the temptation is not coming from with, outside of him. It's coming from within him. That's where the temptation is coming from. And in our post-Eden world, our primary war is within. The thoughts we think are not always right thoughts. The desires we have are not always desires that we can trust. See, we want bad things. We think bad thoughts. You know, so for example, I mean, we we think things like, you know, I'm going to feel a lot better if I say this hateful thing back to this person who's hurt me. You know, that's a bad thought. It's a bad desire. We have thoughts of, you know, even shockingly like this, you know, there's thoughts that cross our mind when a friend of ours has some sort of a success or, or gets something in their life that we want. There's that thought that crosses our mind that we feel self-pity in that moment where we might even be a little bit mad that they're getting what we want. Those are not good thoughts. Those are not good desires. Now, we want sex without a love that puts someone else's interests first. If we follow our desires, we mess up this wonderful thing that God has given us. See, are we aware that there is a war in our head, that there's a war in our hearts? Or do we think that we can trust our mind and what our heart tells us? See, that's why we need to make sure that our thoughts line up with what God says is true. We need to let wise friends speak into our lives. And see, that is because the enemy is within us, is inside us. And the second thing we learn about this war that we're in in this post-Eden world is that this enemy that's inside of us wants to control us. See, at 9-11, we realize that there is a form of a radical Islam that doesn't just want to govern their own country and their own part of the world, but that actually wants the whole world to be governed by the Sharia law that's laid out in the Quran. See, and in this passage, we see that sin isn't just content to have us make one decision, isn't just content to have a part of our life, but wants to own and control us. It doesn't just want to make us slip up once, but wants to drag us down into more and more sin. See, Genesis 4, 7, when God is warning Cain, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Sin desires you. Sin wants to own you. Sin wants to...
control you. Me too. See, we might think that this is just one small sin that if I give into, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But see, this is a misunderstanding of our enemy and the war we're in. Thinking that sin is not going to have that much effect on our life, thinking that we're going to be able to control it is really and truly the path of the addict, right? If you were go to the cross and you might have seen Dave in the last week or two, I can't remember if it was this past Sunday or the Sunday before, but he showed the famous meth pictures of people who were arrested early on for meth and then years later who were arrested again for meth and the effect that meth had had on them over months or maybe years. This is one of those photos. You know, maybe just the thought here is this. Is, you know, this picture is so shocking to me because the woman just seems like a normal housewife kind of person, you know, in the first picture. And the second picture, just a completely different woman question that we might say is, is, did she think in that first time, this isn't that really big a deal, that first hit she took of meth, I can control this. Do you think she thought, you know what, I want to end up like that. Is that what she was thinking? Or did opening up the door to this lead her into a darker place than she thought she was capable of going? See, that's what sin wants to do in our life. If we open the door to it, wants to lead us into a darker place than we thought we could go. Sometimes it's going to develop a habit or a pattern in our life. You know, so, so one way we might cope with getting in trouble or getting in a situation where we make a mistake, mistake is that we lie about it once. Well, then that so easily turns into a habit of how we deal with any time we get into a sticky situation. Our natural way of dealing with it is we lie about it. It becomes a habit. You know, sometimes sins lead to other sins. So we, you know, in a, in a situation, we let bitterness get a hold of our heart. We choose to be bitter at somebody who's wronged us in some way. So then that leads us to other sins. So what do we do is that we begin to talk to other people badly about the person. We sin with our words. So sins can lead to other sins. And sometimes sin, you know, wants to drive us further and further, all the time, wants to drive us further and further away from God. It wants to drive us to deeper and darker sins. And sin also wants to spread to other people. Sin wants to use us to lead other people into sin. Sin wants to uh, work in other people's lives to lead us into sin. That's the way that sin wants to work in the world. And see, that's exactly what we see happening in Cain's family, is sin gives birth to more sin and deeper sin in other people's lives. So we see it, Lynch, it, it, the last person mentioned in Cain's line is a guy named Lamech. This, we're going to look at what Lamech says. It just includes one thing that he said. And uh, this is what it says in, in Genesis 4, 23 to 24. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, think about that maybe for your next daughter's name, Zillah, uh, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, this is how sin has progressed in the line of Cain. See, Lamech is a bigamist. So if, in case you're wondering, you know, there's all these kinds of stories that talk about uh, different characters in the Bible, different historical people in the Bible of having 
you know, multiple wives. The Bible always depicts it as a bad thing. And the first case of bigamy in the entire Bible is in the life of a wicked man, Cain, or in Cain's line, Lamech. And so Lamech here, let's take a look at it. Number one, when Cain murdered somebody, he denied it. He tried to hide it. When Lamech kills somebody, now he's boasting about it. He's declaring what he's done to people. You know, and also, instead of trusting God to bring justice in the situation, now Lamech is taking justice into his own hands. And look at his justice. If you strike or wound me, it's not that I'm just going to strike or wound you back. I'm going to kill you. That's Lamech's justice. I'm not just going to settle for seven times. I'm going to make sure that if you do anything wrong to me, you will punish, be punished to a, a normal, in, you know, an unreasonable amount. You see, now we see that sin has escalated. Sin has hardened people to their sin. Families and cultures have become breeding grounds for sin. And so, you know, that's what we see is that sin wants to work through families, through cultures. And so we as Americans, we have American sins that we're blind to because they're just the pattern and the way of thinking and behavior. Your family has your own set of family sins that are unique to your family that you're blind to because they're just the way that you've used to living. If we just want to live naturally, that's what sin wants for us. It's just to do what comes naturally. But see, one of the things that we realize is that's what sin wants to do in our life. We have to, to stop and to say, God, I need to think deeply about how my lifestyle needs to change, how the way I think about success and money needs to change because I have all, I'm surrounded by all these ways that sin wants to set a pattern for me to affect me. And see, sin spreads so far in this period of history that this is what God says about mankind in Genesis 6-5. He says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's God's description of what mankind was like at this time. We see sin is within us. Sin wants to deepen within us. Sin wants to spread to other people. That's what sin wants to do. But see, here's the difference. I've been kind of comparing this, ba- comparing this battle to 9-11, but here is a big difference. With 9-11, the enemy is still always, you know, you know, some, you know, there is still an enemy outside of ourselves. But see, one of the things that we have to admit in this battle, in this post-Eden battle, that every person needs to admit at some point in their life, that I am the enemy. See, it's not just sin within me. It's that I am a sinner. It's that I want to sin. I choose to sin. That's something that all of us need to admit at some point in our lives. It's not something that just happens to me. It's something that I choose to go along with. But we might say, well, yeah, that might be true, but at least I'm not as bad as Cain. I mean, he murdered his own brother. And while you're right, maybe you haven't, murdered your brother. But listen to what Jesus says to us in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. If we hate someone in our heart, Jesus is telling us, if we slander someone, Jesus is telling us that we have essentially murdered them in our hearts. So like Cain, we are all murderers. Maybe we haven't murdered people with our hands, but we have with our thoughts. We have with our words. And see, the scariest thing about all of this, if we have to admit that, yes, I am a sinner, I am the enemy, is that we realize also that sin requires justice. See, in Genesis 4.10, we see, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You know, when we here we see Abel's blood in a powerful poetic way crying out for justice to be done. God can't ignore it. He's listening to it. He hears it. He can't look away from it. He can't ignore it. He needs to bring justice. You know, in, in, a, in the after 9-11, there was all this, you know, huge desire that we all had is we've got to find everyone who played a part in those planes crashing into those buildings because all of those people who lost their lives deserve justice. Their families deserve justice. And we need to protect anybody else who might be affected by people who want to do these horrible things. We all wanted justice. And in a post-Eden world, we need to realize that we're the ones who need to settle up with justice. And so what hope is there for the enemies of God? Well, in this passage, we see there's great hope. We see that God does two things in this passage that can bring us hope to all of us who are enemies of God. And the first thing that God does is that he doesn't exact immediate justice on Cain. I mean, God would have been absolutely just to strike Cain dead there on the spot for what he's done, right? Life for life. He would have had every right to do so, but, but he doesn't. We see in verses 11 to 16, and now you are cursed from the, from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, God lets Cain live. But because Cain has not yet fully dealt with the evil that he's done, he does increase the consequences for Cain. Cain has to suffer in order to wake himself up. But God gives Cain more time. And see, God could certainly give all of us immediate justice for the sins that we but he hasn't. He has given us time to wake up and admit what we've done. But the question is, is we don't know how long we have. There, it, and that's why there is no better day than today to get right with God. But how do we get right with God? Well, here is the second thing that God does. And this is actually just a reference to the chapter that happened just before this. Because what Cain, hope does Cain have now that he's suffering the consequences? Well, he has the hope because there was a promise given to Adam and Eve in the chapter preceding this. After they had eaten from the uh, forbidden 
tree, God cursed the tempter. And he cursed the tempter when he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See here, God promises that there is going to be a descendant who is going to come, who is going to deal a death blow to the tempter, to the source of evil coming into the world, even though he is going to receive a deadly wound in return. That's what God promises. So Cain, even after the great evil he's done, even though he has to suffer the consequences for what he did, there's still hope for enemies of God like him, like us, to get right with God. And it was by believing the promise that God told his parents that one would come who could make him right. See, the entire Old Testament is this longing for, this looking for, and this waiting for the one who's going to come to set this post-Eden world right. And Hebrews tells us who this person is in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore, this is talking about Jesus, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself likewise, partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, the Son of God was born of a woman. He took on flesh and blood. But he was innocent. He did no wrong. He withstood the enemy even though he was tempted. But he allowed himself to be killed in order to take the justice for what our sin calls for. See, Abel's blood calls out for justice. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says later in Hebrews 12, 26. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that better word? Abel's blood called for justice, but Jesus' blood calls for mercy. Mercy to all who turn to him. See, are we aware that we live in a post-Eden world where not only is the enemy inside us wanting to enslave us, but where we are the enemy? But see, God has given us time to get right. And he's made the way to get right to him by sending Jesus into the world to take the justice that we deserve. And so maybe tonight for the first time, you personally need to turn to the one who can save enemies like you and me. Or maybe we need to turn to him for the thousandth time because we still struggle with our sin. See, here we find mercy. And here we find, as we let that mercy shape our hearts, shape our minds, change the way we think about ourselves, change the way we see the world, change the way we feel about the world. It's then that we get the power to get up and keep fighting our sin. So let me leave with this one question for you to think about as the worship team comes back up. What if we all just took one sin this week? Just one sin. Maybe it's a sin that God has brought into your mind or your heart tonight. A sin maybe that has become a habit in your life, a sin that maybe you've been tolerating in some way in your life and haven't been taking seriously. What if we just took one sin and just thought, just took some time to think, how am I going to fight this? How am I going to not ignore that I'm at war with this sin? This sin is trying to destroy me and draw me into deeper and darker things than where I want to be. What if I fought this in light of what Jesus has done? 
What would that look like? What would that mean? And how can I bring someone else in to help me to fight that? What if we took sometime this week to just look at one sin in that way? Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just confess that we are prone to ignore that we are in a war. We are prone to think that all the problems in the world lie outside of us. Lord, but we need you to wake us up. We need you to show us that we need to be made right. And there is hope of being made right because you've entered in the world to take the justice that we deserve. And that the blood of Jesus does not cry out for justice and death upon those who contributed to his death, but calls out for mercy. Help us to turn to that mercy tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.